And so it, from, from humor to just loving God and loving people well, can we just give a Mission Grove welcome to Dr. Tim Kimmel. You know, I'm really excited about uh, the, the theme because obviously this church is about Jesus. It's about his heart. It's, about, it's guided by its word, but it wants to be tempered by his heart of grace. And, and, and I, I appreciate the, the fact that the guys leading, John and, and the team here, understand the, the, the significant role that family plays in the success of a church because these guys know that strong churches don't make strong families. Strong families make strong churches. They get that. And, and I appreciate that they're focusing in on it. But this, although this focus is here, it, it forms the backdrop of the ongoing work of this church to be, come alongside of us and help us. Because listen, family is work. I mean, it's, it's good work. It's noble work. But it's, it's work because at the core of it, if it's going to work right, there's got to be a, a love functioning in there. But love is work. And it requires ongoing maintenance. You cannot think that you can put your, your sense of commitment and love on cruise control and think that it's going to, to make it because there's just so much junk coming at us. We live in a culture that is antagonistic to our values and our belief system. But even without that, it's just our lives are, well, they're hurried. In fact, the very first book I ever wrote was called Little House on the Freeway. <laughs> Subtitle was Help for the Hurried Home. Because I do sense that that's one of the, one of the bigger ongoing problems that we face as families is that we're hurried. I don't mean we're in a hurry, we're hurried. What's the difference? Well, when I'm in a hurry, I'm setting the pace for that. You're setting the pace for that. But when we're hurried, there are other forces and, 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 and influences out there that are kind of pulling us headlong into the future, not necessarily with our best interest in mind. Now, I saw a, a, a thing that I thought was a great illustration of this. Maybe you've seen it on, on a variety show or maybe at the circus. I saw it at a circus. And kind of, you ever seen the person that, that spins the plates on a stick? You ever seen that, that, that gag where they take a stick and, and, and I don't have the stick and I don't have the right and I don't know how to do this. But I, uh, you know the idea. They, they would take a plate and they'd put it on a stick and they'd spin it. And then they'd add another plate and another. And another. You ever seen that? Well, I think that's what it's like trying to be family today. You know, we got all these, I, I only have four plates here, but let's just say you're starting off, you know, let's say uh, you finish your degree program, you start your career, maybe you fall in love, gotten married, uh, you, you're, you're connected with the church. Well, you, you get these things spinning, and, and I only have four here, but you got a whole lot more than that going. But the cool thing is there's an app for this. And so we can, we can kind of figure out how to do this, and we think we're really fine, and then some of these come along. We, we had four kids, and you know they require a lot more velocity to keep their plates, their, their little saucers going on, and they want us to help them keep it doing. Plus, they have their own little plates they throw out there, so we got to keep them going and do it. But you know what? We're clever people. We're pretty good. And then one of these comes along. This is a teenager. <laughs> it's not a saucer anymore. But it's not a plate yet either. It just thinks it is. It wants all the privileges of a plate, but doesn't have any money. And it sure has a mind of its own when you try and put some spin on it, doesn't it? Uh, you know, I remember when, uh, there was a time when uh, we had th four of our kids were teenagers at the same time, and I thought you got an extra break on your income tax, but they don't do that. The, 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 the point is, is that doing family is a challenge, 
but it's also very strategic because you see, right out of the blocks, God led with his plan. Genesis chapter one, let's make man in our own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. And then, and then in, in Genesis two, he gives the creation account from kind of the other side of the street, gives you another perspective on it. He closes up, for this cause, the man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. And, and, they, and, and, and so he had to configure them some way. Now, he could have configured them into a country or a country club or a corporation or a committee, but he configured them into a family. Somebody was watching. That fallen angel that tried that coup d'etat in heaven and had been cast down to earth, he was watching. And he said, I see your plan. I see your strategy for transferring your heart from one generation to the other. It's his family. I'm coming after it. And we get Genesis chapter 3, and sure enough, he came guns blazing and, 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 and put that little red dot right on Eve and Adam, and boom, down they went. Now, here's what's interesting. God didn't change his strategy. Even though sin entered the world, God didn't change his strategy. You say, well, wait a minute. Yes, he did. Come on, I thought you were a theologian. Come on, Old Testament, it was Israel. Oh, excuse me. And what was Israel? What was it an extension of? One family. Abraham and Sarah's family, Remember? Well, yes, yeah, but we're New Testament people, and it's the church now. Hmm, yeah. You ever been a greeter here at the church? People come in clumps. You know, and you look at it, boy, I can see the gene code in that group. <laughs> they come in families. All we are is a collection of families. And my favorite definition of the family is from the late Pope John Paul. He, wrote, he, he referred to the family as the domestic church. He said it's the smallest church out there. And, 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 and so we represent, his family, his strategy is the same, but if, for, in order for it to work, we needed a redeemer to come and clean up the mess that happened in Genesis 3 and transfer down to the generations. And that's where God's son came to our rescue. And yet, it's still easy with this incredible strategy of family to get off course, even though we're well-intended. And let's assume that most of you know what I mean by people who are, have put your faith and confidence in Jesus. You, 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 want, you want him to play a role in it. But it's very easy, though, to um, be well-intended but still be misguided in how we do it. And I know all about that because I, you know, I, we had a family and we saw how easy it is to get off course. When Darcy and I found out we were going to be parents, we did what a lot of young Christian couples do. We went to the Christian bookstore and we got the, the, the key books on parenting back then. And there weren't nearly as many as there are now, but there were some. And, and we start to read them. And, and by the way, we, we got some good, helpful stuff from it. But, but as we read them, we could sense this author is... There's a, there's a starting point that's framing everything I'm reading. And we found that there were two overwhelming strategies that were kind of guiding most of these books that we read. One of them was fear. We sense this author was, was, was trying to address all this competition we're up against, and they were basically... Uh, uh, telling us how to accommodate the fears we have and, and we feel outgunned and we feel overwhelmed and we feel unqualified and so forth. And by the way, I'm not questioning there's junk out there, but, but I knew a fear-based plan for parenting was dead on arrival. 
I knew that was not a good idea. Even though there was some good advice in it, the concept, the starting point was wrong because you see, if we're followers of Jesus, we should be the last people afraid of just about anything. And I'm not kidding. I mean, the only thing we're supposed to be afraid of are the things God meant for us to be afraid of. I'm afraid of running across the, the 101 on foot. That's a good fear. Don't do that. You'll get killed. Yeah, that's a good, but, but to be afraid of a lost world or cohabitating neighbors or the internet or Hollywood or, or hip-hop music or public schools or whatever. I mean, are you kidding me? To be afraid of them? You see, it's hard to teach your kids to have confidence in a mighty God who had the first word and he's going to have the last one when we're scared. And yet, fear-based parenting is a, is, a, is, a, is a prevailing theme of a lot of Christian families. And the other one was performance-based parenting, where you, know, you kind of outline, what does a nice Christian family look like? What, how do their kids act? How do they dress? What kind of movies they see? Who hangs out with them? It's kind of like evangelical behavioral modification. A lot of sin management. And once again, I thought, I, I saw some good points in the book, but I thought, the, the starting point is flawed. You're not going to get the results you want if you're basically trying to put your kids on a, 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 a Christian performance basis. You end up following your kids around with a, a spiritual report card. That doesn't... But, but I went to seminary. went to a good one. I studied theologies on everything, but I never had anyone unpack a clear theology on family. I got some good courses, but never a theology. My wife, Darcy, is the brains of the operation. She made an observation followed by the right question. She said, wait a minute. Can, God's a parent. He's a parent. In, we're his kids. Here's the question. I wonder if we could study him in his role as a parent dealing with his kids and see if there's any pattern to what he's doing. If there's any common things that he's doing and maybe kind of form them as handles for ourselves. Now, it, it, but we didn't limit ourselves to those handful of passages in the Bible about parent-child. No, no, no. We picked it up page one and went to the last page. In other words, he's engaged with his people all the time, isn't he? Now, some of the people don't believe in him and they, they, don't, they end up not his children in the end, or some do, but they go way off course. But he's always engaged. So we thought, okay, is there anything to it? And sure enough, we saw a pattern. And we got to where we could distill that pattern down to a paper napkin. And there was one overriding theme that kind of described the whole thing, and that's his heart of grace. In fact, out there on the resource table, there's a little card. You can put, a, put that thing of the... Um, the napkin up here. We have this little thing that uh, breaks down the four basic ways that his grace comes at us. You know, he, he, at the bottom there, he, he, he's always dialing in on our inner needs and, and he sets our hearts free the second level. He builds our character muscles and he aims us at something bigger than here now and ourselves. And then we fill in the blanks on what those are like. And those resources out there go deeper. But I, I got to say something before I unpack that second level. I want to talk to you about those four wonderful freedoms. I got to say something about grace. Because here's the other thing that we realized as we started talking about this. Is that there's some urban legends 
within the Christian community, some theological urban legends about grace that are, that are, are widely embraced that keep us from ever letting it have its proper place in our family. Uh, let, let me explain one of them. Uh, see, one of the struggles that a lot of Christians have when it comes to grace is they, they, they tend to limit it to salvation, to the work of salvation. You know, I once was lost, now I'm found, I was blind, now I see. We recognize that there's no way we as human beings could possibly make our way to God on our own because of our sin. He's a holy, righteous God. There's no way we could get to him. You could, you, you, uh, no matter how hard you, you work at it, it, you can't get there because we fall short. That's why he had to send a redeemer. He sent his son, Jesus, who was perfect in, in, in his human form. And then he took your sins and mine on himself. And he died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead to set us free. That's the gospel. Okay, so we get, we get grace there. But then when we come to the ongoing life, this, this is called salvation. This is called sanctification. We, we have a bad habit of leaving grace there and not seeing it as an active ingredient over here. Here's another urban legend. That, that causes some people confusion when it comes to grace being the prevailing theme of their life. And that is, some people, they, they get worried. They say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You start talking about grace and family. What about the boundaries? What about consequences? What about discipline? See, the assumption is that if grace, uh, if grace is there, then we don't have boundaries, we don't have discipline, we don't have consequences. And, and see, this is a, this is a very flawed understanding of biblical grace. And I can make this easy for you. If I were to ask you right now, if you're a follower of Jesus, is Jesus dealing with you in grace right now? And the answer is, did he erase all the boundaries? Did he throw the rule book overboard? Are there now no consequences if we, no, the boundaries are right where they always were. The rule book's right there. The Bible's there. You know, there, said, the Bible said, them whom he loved, he disciplines. See, it's all that, but he does it in grace. Now, one more thing, and then I'm going to start unpacking these four freedoms. <sighs> See, it's real easy in our family to have a family that's guided by God's truth, and yet we don't invite grace to center stage where it belongs. And let's say, let's use our example here, right here, since you came here to, to Mission Grove. I mean, this is these guys, they work hard to create a, a, a setting here for us in this school to really be able to focus in and dial in on God. People came here earlier this morning, set all this up. Isn't it something they do for us? Now, would you say since they started singing praises to God, and even with John's interaction with you and, and, all, and, and so far, from, would you say so far from a truth point of view, have we got the story right so far? Are we being accurate to God's Biblical truth so far? Come on. Yeah, okay. All right. But what if it was 25 degrees in this room the whole time? And you're dressed just like you are right now. It wouldn't matter how right we're getting the truth, would it? It wouldn't matter. We could be as absolutely accurate biblically, but you wouldn't be able to respond to it because you're so cold. <laughs> and see, that's what it's like in a Christian family when we don't invite grace to take its rightful role. And we can be guided by God's truth, but if grace is not there, then the temperature's off. See, temp it, grace is, creates a temperature, climate, for people's hearts to respond better. 
You with me on that? And, and with that in mind, I'd like to unpack those four wonderful freedoms that we, we found that God gives to us in the power of his grace, okay? And, 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 and uh, these things are game changers, by the way, because when you start to understand this is what his grace looks like with a gun held to your head and under stress, then sure enough, then the only way you'll see that you can do this is you can't do it on your own power. Jesus has to do it through you. And I love when he was talking about giving to the church. You don't give to the church, you give through this church. In the same way, God's grace is not something that you give to others. He, come, he wants to give it through you, through your relationship with him. Let's learn together. Let's, let's look at this first wonderful thing. Grace-based families give the people they love, ready, the freedom to be different. The freedom to be different. Now, let me give you some synonyms for different so you know where I'm coming from on this. Ready? Like weird. <laughs> Freedom to be weird. Bizarre. Strange. Goofy. Quirky. Grace-based homes not only have room for those kind of kids, they celebrate them. <laughs> they do. But fear-based homes do not have room for those kind of kids. And spiritual performance-based homes certainly don't have room for those kind of kids. Now, I'm not talking about your kids doing something that is clearly biblically wrong. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about them doing something weird. <laughs> Goofy. That causes you, you to go, go, you wonder what's wrong. For instance, you have a little, little, little boy? You take a little boy, you send him out in the backyard to play. He will go and do a headbutt right into the garage door. Just boom, hit into it. What is wrong with you? Well, he's a little kid. He's a little boy. They do that kind of dumb stuff. And they'll do it again. Same spot on their head. You have a little girl? Let's say you have a little girl, and, she, and she's playing alone. Here's what's interesting. She might be, you might look and she's playing by herself, but she is not alone, and she is never alone. She has friends, and she talks with them. They're not things, they're people. They have names. You give her a pile of rocks, she will make a family. She's a big dude. This is Earl. He's the dad. And there's, you know, give her a bunch of little Barbie dolls, she'll put them in a little semicircle and play the view, you know, and they'll all argue with each other and yell. And, her little brother comes in, sees one of those things, he'll bite the head off, throw it like a grenade, make explosive sound. They're children, they're weird. <laughs> then they become teenagers. Let's say you have a teenage boy, 14, 15 years old. He goes over to his friend's house and says, I'm thinking about doing something different with my hair. Cool, I'll help. Lie down in the grass, cover your ears and your eyes. He gets out the weed whacker and, you know, touch him. And then he takes him in the house and gets in his mother's uh, medicine cabinet, gets out the Clairol or the L'Oreal, and he mixes it all, a bunch of, squeezes a bunch of it, and then mixes it together and sticks, leaves it on way too long, rinses it out. It comes out a little blue, a little pink, a little green, a little yellow. And he gets something to spike it out. And he goes home and shows his Christian mother his new do. And she looks at him and says something like, I don't think Jesus would be very pleased with your hair. You know, isn't it interesting when we're desperate, we drop the biggest name we know. I don't think Jesus would be very pleased with your hair. By the way, right now, kids' hair is, it, it's, it's tame. It's fine. Uh, but I've lived through several, several eras. 
I was a teenager in the middle of one of them when the hair went nuts. And I'm just using this as an example because it's an easy one for you to see. There's all kinds of way, nuances we could apply this. But, you know, there was a time when the kid's hair was just really weird. And, and parents were coming down on making it a spiritual issue, making it a biblical issue. And I got to thinking, well, is it? And one of the things I do for my Bible reading every year is I just read through the Bible. I just read through and then start over again each January. And the cool thing about that is if you wonder what the Bible has to say about something, you just put it on a bookmark in the front of your Bible. And that one year, keep your eye out for what God has to say about hair. Okay, you with me now? I've read the entire Bible on this one. And I know what God has to say about hair. Basically, he says, I don't care. It's your hair. Express yourself. I mean, you can use it like a lab experiment for all I care. It's your hair. And some of you might want to grab the chance while you can. Because <laughs> it's going to bail on you. Now, now, am I, can parents create arbitrary rules about their kid's hair? And the answer is yes, you're the parent. Just don't make it a moral issue when it's not. Don't make it a biblical issue when it's not. Because once you do that, when we make a biblical issue or moral issue out of something that's not that, that's, that's called legalism. And that shoves a wedge between that kid's heart and ourselves and that kid's heart and God. And, and I'm just using this as an example, but I mean, there, you can see all the different ways where, where it's innocuous, and yet we make it a moral issue or a biblical issue when it's not. Our, 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 we have four kids. Our youngest one was a boy named Colt, and going into junior high, he, he, he shot up. I mean, he was pretty tall, over six feet tall when uh, he went into junior high. He was going into eighth grade, and he asked me at the beginning of that year, he said, Dad, can I grow my hair long this year? I said, man, give it. Give it your best shot. I mean, you're going to have to grow it a long time till it's as long as mine was when I was in junior high because I was a 60s kid. We had, I had real long hair. And so he grew it. And, he was tall, and it was beautiful. He had long, beautiful hair. Well, in the springtime, I was speaking at a church down in Miami. I'd finished, and I was actually in a taxi going to the airport when my phone went off. And it was cold. He said, Dad, it's spring break. I, I know. We're going to have a lot of fun. Dad, I was wondering, can I have a mohawk? And I thought about that. And I said, you know what? That'd be kind of fun. Tell you what, I'm going to be home tonight around 7.30. I'll cut you a great mohawk. You can have it all week. But on Saturday, we're going to have to buzz it off because your school doesn't allow mohawks. Well, you have to go back to school. Okay? Great. So we both hung up. Now, you need to know something. I was factoring in something. I was factoring in church. We go to Scottsdale Bible Church, and at that time, Scottsdale Bible Church had two evening services that matched the morning services, so, and all the youth and children's ministries were only available in the evening, and they did that to bring the parents in the evening so we'd have room in the morning, and we had parking problems, okay? So I knew he'd be at church, getting there about 4.30, so he'd be coming home just around 7. I'll cut him a nice mohawk. He hung up, and our daughter Shiloh was listening. What did dad say? He said, I can have one. He's going to cut it for me when he gets home. She said, I know how to cut one of those. <laughs> they got out the clippers and stuff. And listen, remember, his hair was real long. They trimmed the sides, but they took, the, they took Elmer's glue. And they glued that sucker up 
and he went to church. And I'm sure he sucked the oxygen out of a lot of people. And the older people were, you know, the ladies were taking every medication they could find in their purse and they're wondering what happened to security and all that stuff. But in between the two services, you know, everybody kind of gathers out in the middle to switch, switch around. And our pastor at that time was Daryl, uh, and he was outside talking to some people when he saw Colt going across. And he yelled in front of everybody, Colt Kimmel, is that you? Get over here. And he came over here, and he had to look up to him because he was so tall. And he said, that's the finest mohawk I've ever seen. That's incredible. How do you get it to stay up like that? Glue. You know, and then he went, I wish I had a camera. I'd take a picture of me and Cole Kim. I'll put it into my face. Because that is the finest mohawk I've ever seen. Now, the reason I'm telling you this story from our, this little chapter from our, and by the way, I'm sure some people thought, isn't that the son of the guy that talks on parenting, I'm sure. But, but the reason I'm telling you this story is because it was very important to us that we took our kids to a church where the people running it know what matters and what doesn't matter. See, the Bible says man looks on the outside, God looks on the heart. Colt had a great heart. He loved the Lord. Loved his parents and his siblings. He, he, he worked hard in school. He's a good friend. He just wanted to have a mohawk. Okay, now he said, wait a minute, wait a minute, Tim. Don't you think sometimes when you look at the way a kid is dressed out and all that stuff, that it looks like they're in some kind of a moral free fall? And the answer is yes. Sometimes you look at somebody and it looks like there's some problems going on here. My question would be, does it make any sense to attack the outside? The outside's a symptom. The, the heart's the problem. Fix the heart and the outside takes care of itself. If the heart's fine, don't worry about the outside. Don't worry about it. See, that's what grace looks like. It gives people the freedom to be unique, one of a kind, different from ourselves. And, and all the different personalities that God wires people with, you know, you have several kids in your family, you're, you're going to have all kinds of different personalities, but that doesn't make our superior that's what grace looks like. It gives people the freedom to be different. Let me give you some um, scripture for this. It says, may the God of endurance and encouragement, this is from Romans 15, grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another as Christ has accepted you. For the glory of God. It shows glory to God when we have such an all-encompassing sense of, of, of uh, reception to all kinds of people. Every color, every size, every socioeconomic, every education level. And I love in Psalm 139 where David was talking about, uh, he, he, he says, I, I praise you, Lord, because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. Grace-based families allow the children freedom to be different. Let me give you a second freedom. Is grace-based families give the, their children the freedom to be vulnerable. To be vulnerable. What do I mean by this? I mean, they create an environment in a home where kids don't feel like they have to wear masks around the people running the show. That, that they can verbalize their doubts and their fears. That the fragile features of their heart can come to the surface without fear of them being attacked for that. I was going into the ninth grade, big high school back in Maryland, Annapolis High School. And I was excited because uh, 
the rock and roll was louder, the girls were prettier, there was more of both, and I was going to play football for their famous coach. But that summer, in between our eighth and ninth grade, several hundred of us incoming freshmen got letters in the mail from the Board of Education saying that because of overcrowded conditions, we were being annexed to an elementary school in downtown Annapolis. <laughs> so instead of going to the big high school, we're back in elementary school. And there were several trade-offs. Probably the biggest was in the area of phys ed. Because normally in phys ed, you put on a phys ed outfit and you go out and play. And it's a very humid area. And you might sweat. No problem. You take a shower and put your school clothes back on. We didn't have the option to do that. We had to do everything in our school clothes. There was a gymnasium on the second floor of a building, uh, a, a, a block or so from the school. And that's where we went in inclement weather or winter. And I went up the stairs and, in, and on the second floor, I, I went in there one winter morning for phys ed. And as soon as I walked in, I got excited because there was a trampoline opened in, in that gym. And I'd never jumped on one before. They, they weren't pieces of equipment in backyards back then. I got very excited. Or our PE coach came out, our phys ed teacher came out, and we were all gathered around. And he kind of looked around at everybody, came back to me and said, Kimmel, take off your shoes, leave on your socks, climb up here, follow my instructions. So I pulled my shoes off and climbed up, but as I did, I realized I had holes in both of my socks. Not one, both. And one of my friends thought everybody should notice this. Oh, look at Tim's toes together. Isn't this sad? We need to take up a collection by Tim some real socks. It's a way to put me in my place about our, the economics of my family, which, by the way, I was born with a plastic spoon in my mouth. We, we, were, we were not poor. We were just that first notch above middle class. You know, we paid our bills in time. We didn't miss meals. But other than that, we tried to get as much mileage out of our clothing as we could. And up to that point, I thought that was a good idea until I was up there and I was jumping. And all I could think about were my toes. I was doing exactly what the coach told me to do, but all I could think about were those toes. When I stood down, the other guys are jumping. I'm, I, I, my thoughts are, I'm going to go home, get out my sock drawer. I'm going to darn every pair of socks. I will never let this happen to me again. Ever. Because this is a real embarrassing moment for me. Well, when the class was over, the bell rang. The bell rang. The coach, he, he takes off. So I got my shoes on. I went and got my books and my coat on. And I went out the side door. I got to the bottom of the stairs where I hear my name. Kimmel, wait up. It was that coach. He came down the stairs. He pulled me aside. He said, Tim, I want to tell you why I called on you to do that demonstration. Tim, you're the most agile student in my class. And then you know what he did? He reached down. He pulled off his tennis shoe. He said he had a big old hole in his sock. He's standing there wiggling his toes saying, you know, us agile guys are tough on socks, man. <laughs> now go to class. So I'm heading over to class. And the whole way I'm thinking, what's agile? Because I had no clue. I'd never heard the word before. We showed you what a pathetic student I was, but I was going to an English class. They had these big dictionaries on their own. They loved it when you actually looked up a word without a gun held to your head. And I looked up agile. And I read for the first time in my life that I could move with speed, ease, elegance, and liveliness. And I read the second meaning of it, that I was mentally alert and quick-witted. No one had ever told me that before. I wrote it down. And I memorized it. And I did a 180-degree turn in two major areas of my life, athletics and academics. In fact, a couple, a month or so later, they had this contest, who could do the most sit-ups in the ninth grade? Now, they weren't the crunch things we do now. 
These are things that have long since been banned from the public school system where you had, some of you older people remember, where you had to, somebody held your feet down, which by the way hurt like mad, and then you had to come all the way up and cross over and touch the other knee and then go all the way down and touch your head on the ground for it to count. And I, I was determined I was going to set the record that year. And the only reason I did so many is because the guy next to me wanted to do that too, and, and he wouldn't quit. So I just did one more than him. And, and when they can't let us keep going, so we set up through phys ed class, through English class, and through most of lunch. And they were sending out runners. They're up to 561, whatever. My stomach muscles hurt for several days after that. But I didn't care because I was agile. <laughs> now, it took me a while to put the pieces together to figure out why that coach disappeared so quickly after class. He saw what happened. And he had to get to his little office just off the gym, get his shoe off, get the scissors out, cut the hole in his sock, put it back on and race and catch me. I mean, he doesn't go around with holes in his He's a PE teacher. They have new shoes and socks given to him. It's part of the deal. They have the best equipment on their feet out there. But see, he saw a vulnerable kid that needed help. And he touched his life with grace. Now, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, I want to tell you something. Our children and teenagers have these kind of moments all the time. Someone has said, described, uh, defined uh, childhood as a 24-hour day, seven-day-a-week, 365-day-a-year battle to keep from being embarrassed. They need to have sensitive adults that don't trivialize or marginalize these moments that are so tough for them. I realize some kids can become drama kings or queens and go, I understand how you got to ratchet that back. But for the most part, vulnerability is a very difficult, fragile thing because you, don't, you just can't do it with just anybody, especially if somebody retaliates. And that's why I think, especially for us men, as adults, we learn. You just don't be vulnerable, not with anybody, not even your own spouse. It's, it, and I think so much of that is, 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 is drilled into us when we're young. You know, Paul, the Apostle Paul had uh, a thorn in the flesh. No one's sure what it was. Um, some, it might have been a mental thing or whatever. Something, it might have been an eye problem. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he went to God several times and said, please take this away from me. I can say everybody, and each time God said no. And then finally in ch- ch- chapter 12, verse 9, God said, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest in me. See, God uses these fragile things many times as a way for us to to show his grace to the people we love. And I love this, Colossians 4, 6. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Grace-based families give the people they love the freedom to be different and vulnerable. Thirdly, they give the freedom... They give the people they love the freedom to be candid, to be candid. Now, notice I didn't say the freedom to be honest. <clears throat> because, see, bare naked honesty can be cruel. If you've ever seen a show like the Jerry Springer show, it, 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 it requires those people to be very honest. It's telling the other person things that they know are going to just crush this person. But they don't care. See, candor is honesty with a concern on how it affects the person receiving it. That's the difference with candor. We want to give our kids the freedom to be candid. You know, for instance, 
They need to be able to tell us what's on their heart, even if stuff we're not excited about hearing. For instance, what if you have a teenager and they suddenly say, look, I'm sorry, but I'm having a hard time believing that Jesus is the only way to heaven, that the Bible is the, 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 the final authority on that. And, and, all, and you know, this is not a time to panic and hire some professor from Phoenix Seminary and duct tape him to your kid's face or something. You know, smarter kids than yours and mine have gone through spiritual doubts. This is a time to remain calm while their faith is on trial and show them what a steady faith in God looks like. But <clears throat> another problem might be that they have a problem with us as parents. Because unless you're a perfect parent, you're going to make mistakes. Now, when our kids make mistakes, we usually don't have a problem confronting them on it. Is that a two-way street? Because unless you're perfect, none of us are, we're going to get it wrong. And we knew we would get it wrong sometimes. So we initiated a thing in our kid, when our kids were little. Uh, we called it, what's your beef night? And we'd do this like once a quarter where they could order whatever they wanted on the Kimmel menu. And then they could go around and say anything that Darcy and I had done that ticked them off, frustrated them, embarrassed them, whatever. And all we were allowed to do is ask for forgiveness. We weren't be able to put it in context or whatever. No, just ask for forgiveness. Now, they couldn't say things like, you made me go to school or do my homework. We're not talking about those kind of things. They, they knew what. Because we wanted to know, we know we get it wrong. You can come to us. And now where do I get this from? See, in, in, in Hebrews chapter 4, giving you the background, it says, we don't have a high priest that doesn't understand what it's like to be in our skin, but he was in all ways tempted like we are, yet without sin. And it says, so there in verse 16, it says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Have you ever been frustrated with God? Have you ever been angry at God? I have. My mother died a lot younger than I thought she should have. I was frustrated. He's a perfect father. He never makes a mistake. But he also knew what it's like to be us. He says, come to me. I have a big chest. Pour it out. You're going to find mercy finding, waiting for you. We wanted our kids to know that they have access. So our, uh, it was springtime. Our son, Cody, who was second born, he had finished his homework. He was in high school. He was getting ready for bed. He said, oh, Dad, I forgot to mention. I need you to sign me out of school tomorrow by noon. Why? Why? What's up? He said, oh, it's opening day of the Diamondbacks. And uh, my friend Stephen got tickets right behind the dugout. He invited me to go. Now, the year before, the Diamondbacks had beaten the Yankees in the World Series. So this is a big opening game. But for some stupid reason, I thought I should teach my son about personal responsibility. I said, son, you're a student. You go to school at 8. You get off at 3. You can't just take off because there's something funny. He said, Dad, but they're going to have F-16s fly. Well, that, that, that's nice. But, 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 but son, but, but it's like you have a job. We have, all have jobs. There's always big, big distractions. We've got to stay until quitting time. But Dad, I think Randy Johnson's going to be in the mountain. That's good. And then, but, but I came back and kept my lecture up. He says, I think, I think Alice Cooper's going to sing the national anthem. And you just see the poor kid getting so, so exasperated. And finally, he, he, he's, he's straight. He said, Dad, listen. I bring you home straight A's. All I've ever brought you home are straight A's. I can't bring you home any better grades than I'm bringing you. Now you need to decide whether I can go to that game. It was like this divine hand came right down out of the clouds and did one of these right in my head. What is your problem? Sign that boy out. 
really, and here's what's really ironic. I would have never asked my dad to sign me out. I'd have played hooky. <laughs> I reached in my pocket. I took out two large bills. And I gave them to Cody. I said, Cody, make sure you buy the big drinks and the big hot dogs for you and Stephen. And Cody, please forgive me for being such an idiot. I'm so sorry. You, you know, as you grow older, especially when you move into that fourth quarter of the twilight years of your life, it's not uncommon for a lot of your memories of youth to just fade <laughs> where you can't even remember them. And this event may well be one of the ones that fades from his memory. But had I held my ground and refused to sign him out, he'd have never forgot to his last breath what a bonehead he had for a father. It says, we get it wrong sometimes. They've got to have an outlet. Now, he's got to, they've got to speak respectfully to us when they talk to us. Here's the best way to make sure, to raise the odds that they'll speak respectfully to you when they're frustrated with you. Speak respectfully to them when you're frustrated with them. That's what grace looks like. One more verse on this, and then I'm going to have to land a plane and sit down. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 says, See to it that no one misses the grace of God, that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. It's God's grace lived out in real time. He gives, when, it, when it's there, we give people that we love the freedom to be different, vulnerable, candid. And the last one, the last freedom is, we give the people we love the freedom to make mistakes. Another way you could put it, the freedom to be imperfect. Now, in saying that, I don't mean there aren't consequences for that. Because as I said, what the Bible says, them whom God loves, he disciplines. Our daughter Karis wrote a book out there that really unlocks a whole a, a series of, uh, of eye-opening insights of what grace looks like in discipline. It's called grace-based discipline. It's amazing. But we can still discipline, stand in our air hose and still do that graciously, just like God does with us. And see, all grace-based parenting is, I can, I can define it in one, one sentence. It's just, treat your kids the way God treats you. He gives you the freedom to be different and vulnerable and candid and the freedom to be imperfect. His love is not connected to any of our behaviors. Thank the Lord for that. It's all based on the work of his son and his grace. And, and we can have, I, I close with this, and that is, the window of opportunity to touch our kids with grace is not open as long as we think it is. I was reminded of this one one Saturday morning, uh, when our daughter Shiloh, she was at this time about five, and she came into our room, and she came around my side and shook me awake and said, Dad, Dad, it's time to go out on our date. I promised her the night before I'd take her out on a breakfast date. And she got down, got ready, and I, I looked at the clock and said, Honey, it's still dark out. I said, But Daddy, I picked out this outfit for you. No, and, 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 and she looked so cute. And I also knew where she wanted to go was open because... It's open all the time. It's Circle K. That's where she said she wanted me to take her. It's Circle K. And so I said, oh, no problem. This will be fun. So I got up, got, we got to right about dawn. And we went in. She picked out some donuts and some juice. And I got a cup of coffee. I paid for everything. And we went out. We sat down in a curb on the side of the Circle K to have our, our little date. I'm wondering, in the sun, we just started to peek up. And there was a dumpster over here. But we're fine. We're over here. Fine, and we're just sitting, and she's yapping away. And she wanted, she got the, she got the talking about the Sleeping Beauty video we'd gotten for her. And she'd been watching that several times. She was yapping away about Sleeping Beauty. And I said, What's your favorite part of that? Said, oh, Daddy, I love the part at the end when the handsome prince and Sleeping Beauty dance together in a castle. 
I thought, well, that's my favorite part because I'd watched it with her and I don't know what provoked me, but I decided to reenact it. So I put everything back in bag and I picked her up right there. And we're over on the side and I'm just singing this, I know you. Uh, and we're just dancing around. With, I came around, there were some new homes right here and there was a guy. I could see him right there because they had not, these are new homes and they had not built walls. I mean, it was just occupied. And I'm looking over there and there's a guy staring out of his, from his breakfast table at me. And I, oh no, he's thinking, he's over there. Stirring his coffee, calling his wife right about now. Thinking, Look, there's an idiot over to Circle K, <laughs> dancing with a little girl next to a dumpster. But then another thought crossed my mind. Then a very brief period of time, some young man was going to come along and tap me on the shoulder. Say, Mr. Kimmel, may I cut in and waltz her out of my life for good? <laughs> he showed up so soon. It just went... I mean, his name's Ian, a wonderful young man, but he just, it just seemed like it went so fast. Wait, listen, when it comes to parenting, the days are long, but I'm telling you, the years are short. And that's why we need to use every chance we can to live out those years in a relationship with those kids in grace. God, help us. We love you. You're such a wonderful God. We so appreciate in, this, in the state of our unworthiness, how much you reach down to set us free through your, through your blood on the cross. And now, as we're going to focus in on that, we, and, and just thank you so much for that. I pray, Father, that we'll, we'll, we'll move your grace from an abstract to the defining feature of our life, not in our power, but through you working through us. In Jesus' name, amen.